On this episode of Speaking of Diversity and Inclusion, I sit down and have a conversation with Dr. Jason Purnell, who is an associate, uh, an assistant professor at the Brown School of Social Work at Washington University in St. Louis, which is one of the world's leading schools for training social science researchers. And so as we sit down and talk about the social determinants of health, we talk about race and racism and what we can do as an organization to help mitigate the negative effects of some of these social ills. So without further ado, let's get right into our conversation. in September. Um, I'm actually a psychologist by training. I tell people I'm a psychologist in a school of social work who does public health. So <laughs> a bit of an identity crisis some days, but um, I got interested in health disparities after graduate studies with um, a clinical psychologist named Barbara Anderson, who was doing work on psychological adjustment to breast cancer. And I got interested in cancer disparities and then larger disparities beyond just cancer followed up my PhD with a, a postdoc in cancer prevention and control and then got my master's in public health along the way and I've been interested in health equity and social determinants of health. Dr. Purnell, can you tell us a little bit about health equity works? Why is that important to the St. Louis area? It's, it's an initiative of the Brown School uh, called Health Equity Works. Um, we started with a report that was released in May of 2014. That was a collaborative effort with uh, faculty members at St. Louis University and Washington University, a report called For the Sake of All, uh, which was on the health and well-being of African Americans, looking at health equity through a social determinants of health lens and then making recommendations about how we could better address community health in the St. Louis region. I know that you do a lot of work in communities of, of color as well as uh, kind of community health in general. And so I'm wondering if you can help me solve a problem. One of the things that we know is that uh, African-Americans, Native Americans, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, uh, particularly Asian Americans who are more recent immigrants, are highly or less likely to sign up or engage in conversations around some of our experimental cutting-edge, leading technologies that we offer here at, uh, at, at Mayo Clinic. And so w- w- what do you think might be barriers to their participation, and what can we do to overcome those barriers so that they can get the, the best in, um, in what our organization has to offer? I think the issue is likely bidirectional. There's probably a fair amount of distrust and mistrust of medical research given the history and the present day discrimination that African-Americans face in medical settings. Uh, So it's not just an an awareness of things like the Tuskegee trials, but it's people who 
are interacting in medical settings currently and not feeling respected, not feeling listened to. Um, so I think there's probably a fair amount of distrust on the on the patient side. And then the systems and the infrastructure within uh, academic medical settings could could probably be in, uh, improved so that there is greater outreach and, and actual embeddedness within community rather than just hanging up a flyer or putting out an ad saying, be part of my clinical trial, establishing real relationships with communities um, and having the opportunity to build that trust and letting people understand what the benefits of this research is. I think communities have become uh, understandably and justifiably jaded because they've seen researchers come into their communities, collect data, leave, never tell them what the results were, and never explain or, or attempt to provide benefits based on that research. Yeah. So I think uh, there's work to be done on both ends. Isn't extracting, isn't extracting that data just part of the natural order of just doing business? Isn't it the cost of, of doing business in, in these communities? I think it's what is, is currently thought of as the natural process. But if you want to increase diversity and inclusion within those uh, study populations or study samples, you're going to have to create long-term relationships with communities that aren't just about swooping in, getting the data, and swooping back out. So on the public health side, you really are looking at the pre preventing uh, illness and disease. And on the healthcare side, we're looking at developing wellness, right? So how do we get people well? What have you found has been the most impactful, particularly with communities of color, as they try to engage with either preventative or, um, or responsive uh, health-developing relationships with, with uh, hospitals and clinics? What have you found has been uh, effective? Well, the most critical thing has been uh, increasing access by making sure that people have coverage. So the Regional Health Commission has been a crucial partner in the St. Louis region, making sure that in the absence of Medicaid expansion in the state of Missouri, Missouri is one of the states that has not expanded Medicaid, um, there is a program that the Regional Health Commission was able to negotiate with the federal government to provide access. Um, it's called Gateway to Better Health. So that is an example, I think a very powerful example of the academic medical centers, the federally qualified health centers, um, and the major health systems in the St. Louis region coming together around the table of the Regional Health Commission. Um, and, and that Regional Health Commission is, is constantly collecting data, reporting that out, partnering with others in, the, uh, in multiple sectors in the St. Louis region. And we've seen really powerful organizations and entities kind of spin off from the Regional Health Commission, like the Integrated Health Network, which is kind of a common table for safety net providers, um, Alive and Well, which is now its own freestanding organization focused on trauma and toxic stress throughout the state of Missouri. Now that started as a regional health commission initiative. Um, 
so where where we have seen successes in those efforts to work across sector, one of the things we're doing that we've been very involved in is providing school-based health centers uh, for the St. Louis region and now uh, for the state of Missouri. That came out of a work group that for the sake of all established and initiated around school-based health centers, um, sort of the, the uh, optimal model being, one of the optimal models being an on-site full service health clinic, uh, health center within the school setting. Um, and that again is a collaboration that cuts across the education sector, healthcare sector, nonprofit spaces to make sure that that access point is available for young people. So you've been speaking a lot about collaboration. What was the impetus or, or what what drove people to see a necessity to work together to decrease uh, or, or, or actually increase health outcomes for, uh, for people in the St. Louis region? After we released the report in 2014, with support from the Missouri Foundation for Health, we were able to to pivot to a second phase where we took the areas of recommendation. So there were six major areas of recommendation and school health was one of them for addressing health equity in the St. Louis region. Um, and the community really demanded that there be more than just recommendations, that there be action taken. So we, along with our partners at the Institute for Public Health at Washington University and forward through Ferguson, which was, you know, you've got to put this work into the context of Ferguson. So we released that report on May 30th of 2014, and Michael Brown is shot and killed on August 9th of 2014. So the report um, becomes one of the sources that people in St. Louis and around the country and around the world are turning to to try and understand the source of the frustration and the the depth of the disparities that exist in St. Louis. Um, so there, that's part of the impetus, that there's this energy that we must respond to uh, the events of Ferguson. Um, but also, this report presented disparities in a, a stark and compelling way, and there were multiple actors across sectors who were really motivated to come together and plan for what the action ought to be. So school-based health centers was one of those areas through this convening that that we co-hosted where a group of stakeholders came together and stayed at the table. And I, I give lots of people great credit for that, um, including our partners at BJC Healthcare, which is uh, the largest healthcare system in the St. Louis region, but also the school districts that were involved, the nonprofit organizations, the school, the uh, community health centers, the fairly qualified health centers, all staying around that table. So can you talk about this link between race, racism, and, and toxic stress? So what exactly is toxic stress or, and how, how might it manifest in, in today's society? I think part of what makes stress toxic is the inability to escape some of the environments in which the stress is being presented. So 
I mentioned earlier that I'm a psychologist and I think about in my training, treating veterans returning from war zones for post-traumatic stress disorder. Part of the way that you go about approaching that treatment, at least the state of the art a decade ago, was uh, some cognitive restructuring, cognitive reframing, helping those veterans to understand that they were in a, a war zone, but now they're back home. And the response that was, re was adaptive in the war zone is no longer adaptive back home. But we have children and families who never leave the war zone. Uh, for whom the stress response is always going, chronically going, and can't escape the multiple stressors that they're facing. And we know from the scientific literature the kind of wear and tear that that uh, has on the body and the ways in which that ends up sort of getting under the skin and creating uh, all kinds of disease states and, and early death and disability. So I've heard it suggested that this the, these high levels of toxic stress actually impact, no matter what your economic group, impact particular people of color and, and black people specifically in some very adverse ways. So you're saying toxic stress actually has some physical manifestations that can be harmful to people. That is certainly one of the hypotheses. There was a an entire episode of the PBS special a few years back now called When the Bow Breaks as part of uh, Unnatural Causes that talked about low birth weight uh, among even high SES African-American women. They followed a, a woman who was a, a lawyer, I believe, who had taken all her prenatal vitamins. She was eating healthy. She was exercising. She still delivered a baby at low birth weight. And we reported on that in the For the Sake of All report that an African-American woman with college or more education is still more likely to deliver a baby at low birth weight than a white woman who hasn't graduated from college or hasn't graduated from uh, high school rather. So the stress that's associated with racism is still a very potent factor in predicting African-American health outcomes. And it might seem counterintuitive because because we're used to thinking about socioeconomic status as the great equalizer. But even at high levels of socioeconomic status, African-Americans, for, for instance, are more likely to be encountering people outside of their racial group in their daily lives. Um, and the stress that's associated with whether it's microaggressions or large-scale discrimination on a daily basis uh, translates into a stress response. Now, that's not the only explanation for low birth weights. So you just used a word that I'm not sure everyone's familiar with, uh, microaggressions. What are microaggressions, and then how are they related to the, this toxic stress? Is this a form of stress? What are these microaggressions? Microaggressions are conceptualized as a sort of daily interactions that people who are members of oppressed groups experience 
that do have that sort of uh, they have they have distress and agitation and stress attached to them. They may not be uh, something as dramatic as hate speech or employment discrimination, but they are things like being questioned in terms of your uh, the appropriateness of your being in a particular setting or your being, being singled out because of some identity that you hold uh, and these kind of these kind of smaller experiences add up to create a, a stress response. There are growing opportunities across multiple sectors to be more trauma-informed in the approaches that service providers are, are undertaking. I don't think that the onus is on the individual who's experiencing those stressors. I think, you know, a lot of the, the conversation in the trauma space has been about changing the question from what's wrong with you to what happened. And I think that's critical. We think about that in terms of our work with schools and in school health. And it's, it's a really a paradigm shift for the helping professions to have that broader contextual understanding that for instance, a child who's acting out in school may have experienced something the night before on the way to school that is a better explanation for their behavior. But you know, there, there's something interesting in psychology, we call it the fundamental attribution error. This notion that kind of the, the lighthearted example is that if you're 15 minutes, for, 15 minutes late for an appointment, I'm going to blame you and some flaw in your character. But if I'm 15 minutes late for the same appointment, I'm going to explain that away as the kid's bus didn't come on time. I didn't sleep well last night. The car wouldn't start. So we give ourselves a, a lot of situational uh, excuses and explanations for our behavior, but we interpret other people's behavior as uh, some moral failing or character flaw. I think that is, uh, I think that's a hurdle for us as humans, but it, it gets magnified when we're talking about uh, traditionally marginalized and socially disadvantaged populations where there really is a tendency to blame people for their situation rather than understanding the broader context. I think we need a new narrative. Just as we came to understand, and this of course is, is interesting and tied up with issues of race and diversity as well, but you know, we have an opioid epidemic now. Mm -hmm. And we the current conversation is around addiction and the kinds of treatments and prevention that are necessary to address addiction, which many commentators have pointed out is a starkly different conversation from when crack cocaine was introduced uh, into communities of color. 
but that understanding that evolution of an understanding of addiction and the ways in which substances impact the body is an example of a narrative that has changed we're not just blaming people for a lack of willpower or uh, a lack of moral rectitude we're recognizing that people are impacted in multiple ways by substances the analogy that i've used is and i don't you know i don't know if this is a uniquely american phenomenon but i i suspect there's something in in our history and culture and character that leads to this notion that just rugged individualism alone explains life outcomes uh, and the analogy that i use is water and ice so you can't get ice without freezing temperatures. And it doesn't matter how great the water is, it can be the most pure water in the world, it won't become ice unless the temperatures are 32 degrees Fahrenheit or lower. And it turns out, I, I did a little research on the chemistry and the physics of water and ice and water that's under pressure actually needs colder temperatures to turn into ice. Hmm. So in, in my mind, water is like individual effort. It's absolutely necessary, but it's not sufficient for ice. You don't get to ice without freezing temperatures and freezing temperatures are those factors in the social context that allow people to flourish and succeed. Um, they are those social determinants like adequate housing, income, quality education, uh, supportive and safe neighborhoods with services and amenities. In, when you look at kind of the chemistry and physics of water, water that's under pressure needs lower temperatures actually to turn into ice. So what that suggests is that the context needs to be even more supportive. When we think about issues of equity, that becomes a really critical way of thinking about children who were born in boiling cauldrons are gonna need much more application of colder temperatures in order to turn into ice versus children who were born in deep freezes. But we very often just focus on the, wa on the water is the water good enough? Is the water uh, working hard enough? Rather than asking ourselves, are we raising all of our children in freezing temperatures? And we're, we're clearly not. We've decided that some children don't deserve freezing temperatures. So if we build this egalitarian system where everyone gets what they need and you know none is without lack, what do you say to the people that say that you're you're uh, re you're using reverse discrimination against me? Like I'm being deprived of things or I'm losing things so that other people can have these things. How do you combat that mindset or, or how do you address that mindset? There's a real historical illiteracy in our country. People who aren't aware of where and how we got here. Um, from whence we've come. So it's really easy to, to assume that you've been victimized when you don't understand the broader 
sweep of history and the dynamics that created the situation that you're in. But I do think there's also an opportunity to have a conversation about the intersection between factors like race and ethnicity and economic status, because we are seeing particularly middle-aged, rural, whites with increasing mortality rates, lowering life expectancy, dying of things like opioid overdose and suicide and alcohol-related diseases, communities that actually are legitimately struggling. And there's an opportunity to marry that conversation to this, the very same social determinants that we see in urban populations of color and to have a serious and for the first time adult conversation about the same underlying factors that are holding people back. Now, we're still going to see disparities by race and ethnicity because of the long history and the current day racism and, and structural systemic racism that's built into the system. And that is longitudinal. I mean, that's another one of the challenges that we have. People only think in, and, and I'm using research terms now, people only think in slices of time versus what are the cumulative effects of multiple generations being denied access to opportunity. When you can't understand that larger arc, that longer arc of history, it looks like the slice in time, once again, is just the result of someone's effort or lack of effort versus the result of multiple generations of wealth generation, for instance, in one family versus none in another. And what we know, thanks to people like Raj Chetty, about the importance of starting points in life, parents' level of education and income, and the unique contribution and significant and potent contribution that that has to later outcomes for, for those parents' children. So this has been another episode of Speaking of Diversity and Inclusion. Working across racial lines, working across uh, geographic borders in our community, it is very clear that in St. Louis, they've figured out how to uh, make the best out of uh, tragic situations by coming together as a community to solve their problems. So um, I hope that you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Jason Purnell of the Brown School at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, we look forward to his contributions as we move forward. But more importantly, we look forward to seeing who you become. This is Andre Cohen. And again, this has been an episode of Speaking of Diversity and Inclusion at the Mayo Clinic. Have a great day.